Welcome to Almost Here, Around the Corner of Future Technology podcast with Richard Jacobs. Future technologies poised to transform our lives for better or worse are the focus of this podcast. Almost Here means these technologies are now here and starting to be used. We're just around the corner from Bitcoin to artificial intelligence, 3D printing, blockchain, virtual reality, and more. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Future Tech Podcast. My guest is Alan Robert Mardinley. Uh, he's a postdoctoral fellow at University of Berkeley, and we're going to be talking about uh, his work, his research on uh, optogenetics and neuroscience. Alan, how you doing? Very good. Good to be with you. Yeah, thank you. So, uh, you know, let's start out, listeners, just with the, what are the basics of what you're researching? What's the whole premise? Yeah, well, the, the basic premise is uh, this technology called optogenetics, which uh, your listeners may be familiar with because it's been fairly big news in neuroscience over the last 10 years. And basically what this lets us do is use light to control the activity of specific types of neurons. Um, before optogenetics, if you wanted to try to figure out, you know, what some population of neurons was doing in the brain, you had to basically record the signals from those neurons at the same time that you're, cor- you're, you're recording some behavior of the animal. And then at the end, you sort of do some analysis and you try to correlate the two together. What optogenetics does is give you uh, the ability to actually uh, causally manipulate the activity of the cells. So rather than just watching the cells as you behave, you can actually activate the cells directly and see if it causes the behavior. Um, so our particular sort of branch of optogenetics is uh, going uh, a bit step further. And so rather than activating a um, population of cells that are defined by by some genetic marker, um, our holographic approach actually lets you program in uh, spatial temporal sequences of neural activity sort of more closely resemble what actually goes on in the brain. But what, okay. what is the behavior that you're hoping to change or, or influence and how would you actually go about changing it? Yeah, well, that's a good question. Um, you know, this technology should be uh, really broadly applicable to a whole range of behaviors. Um, so in my, my particular lab, the uh, Desnick lab here at Berkeley, you know, we're generally focused on uh, the mouse whisker system. And the reason for that is purely technical. Uh, it turns out that mice, uh, they really love to use their whiskers. They're sort of a nocturnal animal. Their whiskers are to, to them like sort of like our eyes are to us, the dominant sense. Um, and there's a really convenient property in the whisker system so that each one of the whiskers corresponds to a very specific location in the brain. And so we can imagine uh, one of the biggest limitations of this optogenetic technology is actually covering areas of the brain. Um, so right now it's, it's impossible to do it across the entire brain. You sort of have to focus in on a really small region. So if we focus in on that area, which is coding what's happening to a specific whisker, so we can actually try to ask the mouse, uh, you know, questions about, uh, you know, what what type of object is is in front of it, right? And have to ask the mouse, you know, we, we train it to do a discrimination task, so they can report feeling, you know, one object or another object, and we sort of look what's happening in the brain, uh, in the area that uh, is sort of computing what the whisker contacted, and then what our our goal is to sort of um, perturb the neural codes in that particular system. Um, and see if we can understand how that uh, discrimination or sensation is being generated. Um, but, but, but generally, this should be uh, a technology which neuroscientists should find immediate uses for all over the place. Um, you know, probably a wide range of groups are going to be using it uh, for a number of different behaviors. So what information are you hoping to get? You know, uh, 
how do you translate what the mouse experiences through its whisker to, you know, looking at the neurons? I mean, what what are you going to be able to figure out? Yeah, well, the well, in science, right, we never really know what we're going to be able to figure out until after we do it. But the hope, right, the goal is that, uh, you know, given that we have now an approach where we can actually uh, manipulate specific populations of neurons, both in space and in time, we can start to sort of figure out exactly what the neural code is underlying perception. The idea is that, you know, there's, there's lots of conflicting evidence out there in the literature about, you know, what features of a particular train of action potentials from different neurons are being used for computation. And so if we can actually start to control these things precisely enough over a large enough area of the brain, we can write in different patterns. And we can do that again and again and again, and we can vary the patterns, um, parameterize distinct uh, statistical parameters, and begin to really causally figure out um, exactly how certain computations are being performed. Uh, and the end result of that is that we're going to have, you know, A, just much more insight into um, how brains actually perform computations. Uh, and then, you know, that will let us open up a whole host of new technologies, uh, including but not limited to, um, you know, better brain-machine interfaces. Well, how far along are you in this process? Have you, um, you know, have you hooked up a mouse to this? Have you gotten feedback? Have you figured out anything that was, like, really surprising about their behavior or how they have a compute, as you mentioned? Yeah, we're relatively early in this process, right? So, um, you know, our, our work up to this point has mainly been focused on, on developing this technology to even even uh, make this possible. You know, there's a, a couple of groups sort of across the world that have been uh, moving towards this, uh, you know, holographic optogenetic technology over the last five or six years. Uh, we're one of them. There's several others, uh, uh, pretty tight-knit community. Uh, and the goal was really to been to get this technology up and running uh, to the point where we could even uh, get it working well enough to think about doing some of these experiments. So all of us have the same goal. Uh, all of us have, um, you know, similar but, you know, maybe distinct approaches. And the idea here is that we're going to first and foremost get this technology to a place where neuroscience labs across the world can begin to really use it to uh, address their specific questions. Um, you know, we have tested extensively in the mouse. Uh, and we're, we've demonstrated that this thing pretty much works the way we want it to. And so the current research projects are um, are all about manipulating behavior. Well, what's, what's any, maybe I, you know, it wasn't clear. What's an example of an experiment that you'd like to do once you're, once you're able to do it? Uh, sure. Well, I mean, the, the experiment that I'd love to do is uh, be able to actually uh, write, you know, basically, basically teach the mouse a uh, a new type of perception, right? So the, if we, you know, normally the types of inputs that we get into our brain are constrained by our sensory system. Um, you know, if I'm I'm walking around, I've got my five senses. You know, uh, you know, using this type of technology, if we actually begin to understand the pattern of inputs to the brain well enough, you know, there is the idea that you could, um, you know, sort of translate some sixth sense that we we can't normally experience, like magnetism or something like that. If you had a little magnetic sensor, right, and you were able to translate something like a magnetic sensor into a language that the brain could comprehend, you know, you could write that directly into the brain and sort of add a, a sensory modality. So something like that, um, you know, that, that's, that's pretty far off right now, uh, just to be clear. <laughs> but, but this technology, you know, probably um, is going to form the basis of the ability to do something like that in a mouse maybe over the next 
five, five to ten years. Yeah, I mean, people have done this already. Just you know, if someone's uh, you know blind, their ears get more sensitive, and maybe they're able to uh, figure out direction of sound better than other people. And you know, there's been examples of a few extreme people, like this bat boy. You know, he would click, and based on the echoes, you'd figure out you know what's in a room. But I could see exactly. how if you figured out how brains do this, then it would be a lot easier for people to do it and add senses, you know? That's right. And if you and if you got good enough at really talking to the brain, you wouldn't necessarily be limited to, to purely sensory things, right? It's not, you know, it, it's still, to be clear, it's still science fiction, but it's not, uh, but it's not preposterous to begin to imagine ways of sort of plugging in the computer directly to the brain and, and having bi-directional communication. Hmm. So what's, um, what do you think would be the, one of the most useful things that... Uh, extra senses or abilities that that people could have once you figure this out yeah well, i mean the the most clinically relevant right now is for is for patients that are quadriplegics and are unable to move any muscles below their neck uh, so we already have uh brain machine interfaces for patients like these but these brain machine interfaces uh, can be improved a whole lot i mean all sorts of axes they are highly invasive they're not very stable um and uh they don't actually record that many signals. And you also can't write into the brain. So if you had a, uh, this technology might in the future, you know, again, we're talking relatively distant future here, but you know, the, the possibility exists that we could use the type of holographic optogenetic approach to interface with you know, many, many more neurons, uh, write activity back into the brain, and that would sort of let these patients control a whole host of uh, you know, the entire, basically access the entire electronic world uh, much more easily, uh, including but not limited to, um, you know, robotic arms potentially to help them, uh, you know, feed, feed themselves and things like that. Hmm. What's your guess? I mean, how complicated is, is the brain's method of computing what's going on based on sensors? Yeah, well, <laughs> that's an open question. Uh, probably very complicated. Uh, the brain, you know, generally resists most attempts to understand it. But the potentially, what what might be the saving grace is that the brain also exhibits a whole bunch of, uh, of plasticity, meaning that you know there, there may be an amazing potential for it to uh, adapt to a signal that we might put in. Uh, and, and also, on the other hand, you know, uh, you know, our, our, our computational ability. Um, to sort of arbitrarily decode signals um, is expanding rapidly. So we sort of have plasticity on both sides, right, in the brain and, and potentially in the computer interface that might greatly facilitate uh, the ability to, to use a technology like this to uh, have a brain-machine interface, even, even without precisely understanding how sensation is encoded on like an action potential by action potential cell-by-cell -cell level. Although for neuroscientists, that, that really is the goal, right? Um, are there any particular, I mean, brains tend to favor certain kinds of interfaces, you know, or senses. Um, any clues there as to why? And do they, you know, do the, the way we sense things, does it resemble how we've created machines to sense things? Uh, interesting question. Uh, I think that, you know, different brains and different, different species are, have different dominant senses. And I think this is just linked to evolution. You know, we've evolved to be you know, primates have evolved to be very visual animals, right? We've got great eyes. They work very well. And we have a whole bunch of our brain dedicated to it. Um, whereas uh, we've really sort of evolutionarily lost a lot of the sensitivity to olfaction that uh, that some animals have. So I mentioned mice earlier are very whisker-centric animals. But, you know, they're nocturnal. And so they sort of spend most of the time running around in the dark, uh, 
underground and burrows. And so, uh, you know, they have functional eyes. They're, they're, they're fine, but they're much more uh, of the brain is devoted to these facial whiskers. Uh, so I think that's just evolution. Well, I've always wondered, for instance, what's it like to be a dog or a bloodhound and to smell like they do or to see like a hawk sees? I mean, do you also see this could um, help with augmentation of senses so that we could do those <laughs> kinds of things? Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, we're dangerously bordering, bordering into the, the philosophical about what's the, you know, the, the famous, uh, uh, I wish I can remember, what's it like to be a bat, right? With Nagel. So it's uh, whether whether you could ever sort of create the affect of, <laughs> of a smell that the bloodhound experiences, who, who knows, right? Um, but what you might be able to do, and again, I'll just keep saying this is this is still relatively close to science fiction, right? Is uh, yeah. is just to be able to take some input that maybe some mechanical sensor can get, um, that maybe a biological sensor that's that's part of our bodies, you know, can't get, and uh, convey that information directly. And you know, but honestly, uh, that 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 that's the ways off, and you'd have to prove that it's better than putting it on a monitor so you can use your eyes. So what do you think is, is going to be the easiest, you know, did you pick a whisker because that's like the simplest uh, type of sense, you know, it's mechanical feedback or is there, are there other senses well, that may be simpler? Uh, whisker is probably a relatively simple uh, sense in some respects, but the reason we chose it is that, you know, right now one of the critical limitations of this technology is the area that we can control. So everything, everything sort of sits under a microscope objective. And we can sort of access an area that's about a millimeter by a millimeter uh, by half a millimeter deep. And that is a reasonable sized chunk of neurons. We're going to get a couple thousand neurons in there. Um, but it's nowhere close to the entire brain. It's not even anywhere close to the whole uh, size of, say, the visual cortex. And so you can imagine if you're trying to manipulate a visual behavior and you are able to see about maybe a tenth of the neurons involved in vision, um, it's going to be very difficult because you've still got 90% of those cells that you're not seeing and you're not manipulating. So the reason that we chose a whisker is that the area that corresponds to a single whisker is only a few hundred microns. So we can sort of find it in the brain, put our microscope objective right on top of it, and at least the possibility exists that we're going to simultaneously be able to image and record from, as well as stimulate and control, you know, basically every neuron uh, that's involved in... Uh, encoding what that whisker is doing, at least in, uh, you know, uh, early sensory area in the cortex. Hmm. I mean, I would guess there's redundancy. Do you think that you need to have all of the, uh, the area that the whisker would cover or just part of it's enough, or do you not know? Well, uh, there clearly is redundancy. So uh, even, even with that, you know, there's, there's other areas that get information from that whisker that we're not going to be able to access, you know, specifically deep layers of the cortex, we're not going to be able to see in other areas of the brain, like superior colliculus, you know, get input from that whisker uh, before it gets to the cortex. So you're absolutely right. There's a lot of distributed information in the brain. Uh, and so we're going to sort of have to do the best we can by manipulating whatever nodes we have access to. Hmm. Okay. What's the, the timeline of the project? When do you guess that you may start to, uh, you know, get results? And, you know, what are some of like the big hurdles that you're facing in, in doing it? Right. Well, the timeline on the project is it's sort of open-ended. We've just published our paper uh, describing the technology a couple of weeks ago. So in one respect, that's a, a oh. big milestone. And we've, um, you know, taken a deep breath <laughs> and said, okay, we got that, we got that done and try to really focus in on what to do next. So uh, I'm, I'm involved in, in training animals right now. So you have to sort of 
operantly condition these mice to do a behavior. Uh, and so that's, that's a, you know, it, it, this can be done. It's a little bit of a practical hurdle. And then, um, you know, really, I, I think one of the, the two big bottlenecks, you know, one is, uh, you know, pretty uninteresting. It, it's just logistics. Um, these, these machines that are able to uh, manipulate these brain machine interfaces, holographic optogenetics, you know, they're very large. Uh, they're very expensive. Um, and so we don't really have very many of them. <laughs> so there's a limit to how many uh, experiments you can do at the same time. Uh, so we, we only have a few mice. Uh, and so if you have uh, mice that don't want to perform, you end up wasting lots of time. So that uh, really, I, I think, honestly, is one of our biggest obstacles right now. Uh, and then the other obstacle, I think, is, is sort of um, you know, building up the appropriate uh, analysis pipelines. You know, now that we have shown that we can uh, you know, image thousands of neurons and, and stimulate potentially up to a thousand per second, you know, the technical ability to do that is great and we have it. But now the ability to sort of deploy that in real time uh, to make sure we're, 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 we're sensing the activity of the neurons correctly and then using that to update the stimulation pattern, um, that has to happen so fast that there's no time for human intervention. So really programming the algorithms that are going to take the activity of some neurons and use it to stimulate others, uh, I think is a big challenge for the field. Uh, but we're collectively uh, making some, some pretty good strides. But I wouldn't say that's quite solved yet. Do you have a sense of how complicated the signaling is for whiskers so far? Right. Uh, well, uh, that's a hard question to answer. <laughs> I mean, uh, so there's a lot of things you can do to a whisker. Uh, you, can, you can place an object in front of it, and you can have a the mouse sort of palpate it and try to identify the object, you know, or you could do something more, more direct possibly and just, you know, get it with a, a little vibrating piezo and then uh, oscillate the whisker back and forth at different frequencies. Um, so some of these things are more naturalistic, more ethologically relevant, while others are more uh, potentially easy to understand because we know exactly what we're doing to the whisker. Um, but the answer is that, uh, you know, well, yeah, it's not simple. <laughs> hmm. Okay. I mean, any, you know, would it help you to get a, a, an estimate of the scope of the difficulty or, I mean, you yeah, just jump in regardless, but, you know. You just jump in regardless. And, and so, you know, my approach throughout my career has been to be as reductionist as I can, right? Which is to say, mm. uh, you know, it, it's very complicated. So we're going to try to do the simplest possible thing, which is just flick the whisker, right? You know, you're going to go from no sensory input to being deflected. Um but when you when you do that, what you end up seeing is that a lot of the responses that you get are are unreliable. So the the whole population of neurons is somehow conveying the same information, but the same pattern doesn't appear every single time, even for something very simple like that. Really, so you sort of have to contend with this idea that information uh, tends to be distributed across large populations of cells, um, you know, in some in some higher dimensional space. Um, hmm. Rather than how do they come to a consensus then? If if you have information distributed, that's fascinating. You know, that's crazy. Yeah, well, it makes sense, right? I mean, if you you wouldn't want to, you wouldn't want all of your information or one critical piece of information to be in a few critical cells. You know, something happens to them. You know, they drop out. And this is a, you know, the idea uh, was discussed years ago about something called a, a grandmother cell hypothesis, right? If you've got a couple of neurons right, in your yeah. brain that are, you know, coding for your grandmother and you get hit in the head, you might not forget her. You know, that, that's not a great way to build a system. So you want things as distributed as possible uh, and as redundant as possible. But what that means is that it's, 
difficult to decode, especially when you're sampling from a very small subset of all the neurons in the brain. Hmm. Any idea of on, on how information is distributed? I mean, what par what parts are where? How much redundancy? <laughs> right. Um, no, it's hard to put bounds on them. I and mean, there's definitely better people than I to, to answer that question that, uh, that are more focused on the theory. In terms of how distributed, um, you know, uh, again, that's, that's hard to answer, but, you know, recent studies have come out really showing that, uh, at least in the mouse, almost every area of cortex is somehow connected to every other area. So it's a very complex, uh, interconnected <laughs> system. Uh, you know, with that being said, even with all that complexity and all that, that, uh, that uh, distribution, there are some sort of canonical circuits that we understand. So we, we do know basically, you know, how sensory information gets into the cortex how it's transformed, you know, or at least where, I'll say, where it's transformed uh, and integrated over space. And then we also know specific brain structures that are the outputs for the cortex that sort of send that information everywhere. But even just recording from a bunch of neurons, uh, enough neurons, and all of those layers simultaneously, uh, it still hasn't been done yet. You know, it's very technically challenging. So, you know, if you think of... Uh, the brain, like a, a neural network that maybe some of your listeners will be more uh, more comfortable thinking about, right? You have a, an input layer, a hidden layer, and an output layer. And you can imagine trying to understand what this neural network is doing uh, by maybe looking at the, uh, you know, the values in each of one of those neurons. You know, maybe, maybe you're sampling from 1% and you're sampling from maybe 1% at the time. It's going to be very difficult to really complete that, that weight matrix. But then if you have a technology... Hmm where you can go in there and you can sort of turn different cells on uh, in different patterns at different times, you might be able to get some sense of the output, but only if you can do that with enough precision and only if you can do it over a wide enough area all at the same time. And that's what our approach is you know, hopefully going to get to. Okay, very good. Well, what's the best way to uh, to find out more about your research? I don't know how much is public or not, or you know, to contact you to collaborate if listeners are interested, you know? Sure, yeah. Uh, you know, uh, a Google search for uh, for uh, my name or, or, or the Adesnik Lab, uh, my, my mentor, Halal Adesnik at UC Berkeley, um, will we'll pull up our recent paper in Nature Neuroscience called, uh, what do we even call it, Precise Holographic Manipulation of, uh, of uh, Neural Ensemble Activity, something like that. And um, the paper is uh, recently out, along with another paper last year in uh, on a, on a holographic simulation technique called 3D Shot that we've made. So Googling 3D Shot uh, uh, will we'll definitely pull us up. And you can read about the research in you know, much, much more technical detail. And, uh, you know, I'm generally pretty easy to find. All right. Well, very good. Well, I appreciate you coming on the podcast. And sorry I uh, asked you such tough questions, but it's really fascinating. That's why I wanted to know, you know. So thank you. Yeah, no problem. Well, it was great to talk to you. We always like uh, trying to explain what we're up to over here. And uh, just, I, again, I, I, I said this at one point uh, sometime in the middle. I want to emphasize, you know, because what, when we talk to people, uh, you know, sometimes in the press or in different distribution media, often the public sort of gets the sense that, you know, me and maybe a few other guys over here at Berkeley sort of came up with this cool new technology. And, you know, I always like to emphasize this is just not how science works these days, right? We have hundreds of people uh, distributed across the world and sort of in close collaboration um, that are building on each other's work. So uh, we've, I think, made a pretty good contribution and uh, certainly improved some technology. Um, but standing on the shoulders of lots of other people, 
you know, and tomorrow they're going to take what we did and make it even better. So uh, I would like to just make sure everyone sort of gets the, the feel for, for how science is moving forward. Very good. Well, thank you. You've been listening to Almost Here, Around the Corner Future Technology Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Subscribe to this podcast, both to review, to discover more future technologies that are poised to transform our lives for better or worse, such as Bitcoin, artificial intelligence, 3D printing, blockchain, virtual reality, and more.